Redeemers. My name is Brent. I'm one of the pastors here at Redeemers Church. If you have a Bible, you can open up to Matthew chapter 26. We are going to tackle a lot today in a short-ish amount of time. Father, thank you so much uh, that we get to gather as your people. And that as we read in the psalm, your kingdom is an everlasting kingdom and it is expansive and it is growing and we get to participate in it because of who you are and your invitation to it. So as a people, we rejoice about that. And today as we look at quite possibly the darkest hour in human history, um, may we find beauty and life in what you did for us and in the way in which you loved us. So God, be with us. Encourage our hearts in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. So, Matthew 26, and we will get into 27 as well. I promise you that. I was looking over my notes a long time ago from Luke. It took me eight weeks to teach this section, and I'm going to do it in one day. All right? Not a full day, I promise. So, (laughs) we'll get out of here about 40, okay? I promise. So this morning, as we get into and look at this text, uh, I want to approach it from probably one of my uh, favorite themes in how I talk about the kingdom of God, the good news of Jesus Christ, the proclamation that he is risen. And it's going to be this morning through the lens of identity. Identity is one of my favorite ways of unpacking the story of God because it is so applicable to each and every person that you come in contact with. Uh, What do I mean by that here this morning? Well, in Western culture, we have an individualistic identity, and we look at it as a lens in how we approach Life, participation in community, how I look at my neighbors, and how I look at myself. And if we were to go back in time, and we were to spend time in Jesus' world, they had a much different lens in how they viewed identity. Uh, Often in the scriptures, you'll see that somebody's name is son of, like Simon bar Jonah, son of Jonah. You were identified through your family name, yes. You were identified through your community and in the way in which you participated in that community. They lived in, in what many Eastern cultures live in, called a guilt and, excuse me, called a shame and honor culture. A shame and honor culture. Now, a shame and honor culture looks like this. I find value. I find self-worth. I find identity and I find who I am based upon who my culture tells me who I am. So if I do something offensive in my culture, it's going to bring shame and dishonor upon my family's name, therefore telling me I am rejected, not accepted, I've done something wrong. And from generation to generation, this is how much of the world functioned and operated and continues to in many parts of the world today as a shame and honor culture. Let me give you an example of this. I read an article, this was years and years ago, but it was about a man who was living in China. 
And for a year, a year and a half, every single morning, he would get up, he would put on his nice suit, and he would put on his tie, and he would get on the train, and he would go and sit on this park bench. Now, here's the backstory. He had been fired for a year to a year and a half, but he didn't want his family's name to be ruined. He didn't want his family, not, not, not talking his just immediately, his immediate, like his, his entire family name, because it would bring shame and dishonor to his name. Now, compare that to the fun employment that Americans use, right? Like, I got laid off, and now I get more time to rock climb and hang out, and I get stimulus checks and all the rest. We don't have the same kind of dishonor when we're not participating in culture and the way which people think is acceptable to be participating in. Why? Because we are an individualistic society. We are about the self. And the way in which we get identity is how I view and find myself. And so we're on this endless search in our culture to find out that question, who am I? Who am I? And if your culture is not going to tell you who you are, then you're left to this individualistic search of finding identity. Now, let me just say this. Both those have their faults. Both those have their faults. If we're only going to be defined by our community, we're going to be left in this rat race of trying to do things to prove ourselves to other people in order to validate who I am. But if we're only on the search of individualistic finding ourselves, we're going to continue to plumb the depths of our soul, exhausting our lives, trying to find out who am I and what can I know about myself. Now, why is this important? We're just going to let those two thoughts hang out there. Identity, what you believe about yourself, drastically impacts how you live. What you believe about yourself drastically impacts how you live. Why? Because you live out of that inner core. You live out of, you react out of, you respond out of, you are motivated from that inner core. Now, think this through. On this negative side, if you're always trying to find yourself, you're going to live out of an anxious presence. If you don't know who you are, you're constantly going to live in a place where you're anxious and wondering and worried. What do they think of me? What does that tell me about who I am? If you are an anxious person, I can, I can throw myself in there, believe it or not. If you are an anxious person, for example, how many of you guys enjoy going out to eat? I love it. If you have kids, you love going out to eat because you're not doing the dishes. That's a fantastic thing. Um, how many of you who go out to eat like going out to new places to eat? I hate it. My wife and I, we were graciously given for uh, last month, Pastoral Appreciation Month, this gift card for 100 bucks, and she's like, we got a date night. She's like, where do you want to go? You want to try something new? And I'm like, mm. <laughs> why not? Where are we going to park? What am I going to order? What's it going to taste like? And I just go down the list of things, and she's like, you're killing me. And I get this anxiety about trying something new. And I know it seems really, really silly to go down those roads, but here's the deal. When I live out of an anxious presence, I miss the moment 
because I'm so worried about what it's going to be like. I miss the moment that I am. Do you see how I'm living out of my inner core? I'm living out of this deep sense of maybe insecurities. What makes somebody an anxious person? Bad experiences? The thought of looking dumb? That's pretty much it for me. Like, am I going to be able to pronounce whatever's on the menu if we go to that place? Like, I don't want, I'm going to study it ahead of time, listen to it on Google to make sure I pronounce it right. Okay, that's how I am. I don't want to look dumb. I want to fit in. How many of you have insecurities? Anybody deal with those? Oh my gosh. Sitting up here, all of my insecurities are just like inside, they're flaming. Outside, I hope it doesn't show. Okay, but inside, I'm just like, oh my goodness, all my insecurities. I'll look out there and somebody will giggle and I'll be like, is my fly down? Like, which my first Sunday at Redeemers that I ever preached a sermon, somebody came up to me. He's in the room today and said, your fly's down during the break. Yeah, so, so he set the stage for the rest of my life of just being terrified. <laughs> Thanks, Dave. <laughs> I love it. It was a true story. True story actually happened. Insecurities, they produce something in us. Let me give you this definition of an insecurity. Insecurity is the feeling of inadequacy. Not being good. I don't think I need to explain that. And uncertainty. And here's what, this is a secular source. This is not just like some Christian commentary that I pulled this from, okay? Insecurities, it produces anxiety about your goals, relationships, and ability to handle certain situations. You're living out of your insecurities. You're living out of that inner core. And so what these insecurities produce in us This worrying, am I good enough? Will I be accepted? Will I be loved? And it causes us then to do all sorts of things we would not ordinarily do, okay? For some, it can lead to absolute apathy. I'll never be accepted. I'll never be loved. I'll never be welcomed, so I'll never try. Why would I make new relationships? Why would I meet new people? Why would I try new things? For others, it creates a drive in them, a drive to be the most successful, the best at, the most loved, and they're doing it out of this sense of I'm not these things, and it's produced a desire to be these things, and so they work themselves down to the bone in order to become somebody of worth and value. And this is the quest that humanity is on, and the scriptures are going to speak a beautiful story of your identity. Yes, I took way too long to get to that, but it's important. It doesn't matter who you are, you're living out of your identity. I mean, how many of you have been in a situation where you've met somebody? Like, they're awesome. I love hanging out with them. They're pretty cool. What do you do? You try to be the best version of yourself. It's called dating, right? Like, I fooled my wife, and I won because we're married. And then she's like, oh, so your roommates did all the cleaning and cooking, and your roommates made sure, oh, I get it now. You're just, okay. (laughs) I see what I married, right? We live out of that. On a positive side... We talked about identity this morning. You were all created in the image of God with this capacity to love, for justice, for peace, for mercy, for hope that God has instilled in us. But we can definitely see on a negative side how we've been broken and devastated. And when we live out of our insecurities and our anxiety, 
We don't respond and operate in situations the best that we can. Is there, is there a better way? This first slide that's going to come up. And this is what I want to talk about this morning. We have already dealt with uh, last year as we started with just the birth of Jesus and we looked at Advent. And that's a big piece that always gets talked about every single year. There's also this other big piece that we talk about every single year in the church. It's rhythmic. It's the uh, death and resurrection of Jesus. Good Friday to then the resurrection of Jesus. There is this big part in between the birth of Jesus. I don't know if you guys know this. And the resurrection of Jesus. It's where the gospels put a ton of emphasis. And it's all about Jesus bringing the kingdom kingdom living, what this looks like. And so we see kingdom living and we get this idea and really this ideal of what God would have for us, how we're to love and treat one another, how we're to go out after the outcast and the marginalized and bring them in and love them well and care for one another, kingdom living. And we see this, yet we see these disciples walking with Jesus and they're miserable failures at kingdom living. Like, when a whole village rejects Jesus, they go, should we burn them, Jesus? Call down fire like Elijah? They can be seen arguing, who's the greatest amongst them? They're upset when he's welcoming the Samaritan into their world. And so we see the disciples struggle, but Jesus has constantly come to kingdom. But how? How can we actually be a part of this kingdom? That's where this section of scripture comes in. It's cross. Or redemption initiated. Where Jesus is doing something in order to birth, to make, to create a people who can actually live in what his kingdom is. And then what that does is it gives us new identity, which then gives us a new activity in how we live our lives. Really simple, right? This chapter is the culmination of kingdom living finding its climax in the cross, and then the resolution of you have identity and now it changes your activity. And this morning, I'm not going to attempt to fix anyone. If you have anxiety or insecurities, join the fun, the club, find a counselor, right? And talk, talk to them a whole lot. I also hope in this next season, because I don't want to just give Band-Aid answers, that as we dive into spiritual disciplines and what it looks like to be a non-anxious presence and all of these other great sayings that we want to bring into our life, that we sense what God is doing in his kingdom. But what I want to accomplish is really vital. Because two weeks ago, Carson painted this scene, Jesus in the garden. And he's praying and he's seeking the Father. And there when his... I guess you call them enemies, accusers. They come with swords and hands. Carson said, how people respond, psychologists will say how people respond is with fight, flight, or freeze, right? You're presented to a, in a really difficult situation. You get really bad news. You're gonna fight it. You're gonna flee from it. Or you just freeze. I don't know what to do. I don't know what to do. And what Carson shared that was so pivotal in that is Jesus didn't function in any of those. He did something completely different. In fact, he didn't fight, but he stood his ground. He said, lay down your swords to his disciples. He didn't flee. He submitted to the will of the Father. He didn't freeze, freak out and say, oh, I didn't expect this and I have no idea how to respond to this. 
but he was willing to lay down his life and to submit to what was coming his way. How does Jesus do this? He lives out of the identity that he knows is his. We're going to see that here in the scriptures. I promised you that we'd get there, so here we go. Check it out. In chapter 26, Jesus has been arrested. Jesus has been betrayed, and he's standing before this priestly council. And you could call this a trial, which some people do. It might also just be a part where they're gathering information in order to hand him over to Herod, which, uh, excuse me, to Pilate, which is pretty much a trial, but they would try to get around their rules and their laws by not calling this a trial. And so it says here in 57 of chapter 26, then those who had seized Jesus led him to Caiaphas, the high priest, where the scribes and the elders had gathered together. Peter was following him at a distance as far as the courtyard of the high priest, and going inside, he sat with the guards to see the end. Now the chief priests and the whole council were seeking false testimony against Jesus, and they might put him to death. False testimony, bringing in false witnesses, because they have an agenda. They have a desire to kill him. But they found none, though many false witnesses came forward. At least two came forward and said, this man said, I am able to destroy the temple of God and to rebuild it in three days. And the high priest stood up and said, have you no answer? What is it that these men testify against you? Look, but Jesus remained silent. He was there in the garden previously, and those came against him with swords and clubs in their hands, and he's accepting what's coming down the pipe at him. Now he's in another situation. Is Jesus going to do flight? Is he going to freeze? Is he going to fight? Watch But Jesus remained silent, and the high priest said to him, I adjure you by the living God. So he's calling on the name of Yahweh to respond, tell us if you are the Christ, the Son of God. Now just for a moment, put yourself in a situation in which your life is at stake. What do you do? How about this? When your reputation is at stake, and all you have to do is tell a lie, lie, and your reputation won't be at stake anymore. What's your human tendency? You're going to do that. I mean, you heard the squeal in here. Like, that is from birth. You're going to go, I'm going to protect myself. I'm going to fight in some way, or I'm going to get out of the situation. But look at how Jesus responds. Jesus said to him, you have said so. Are you the Messiah? You have said so. It's not quite a no. Why? Because he is the Messiah. But it's not the yes that they explicitly wanted. Why? Because he's saying, I am the Messiah, but not the kind of Messiah that you had thought up. Not the kind of Messiah that you wanted to come into town and trample down Rome and establish this kingdom. I am a completely different kind of Messiah than you could ever think of. And Jesus gives that response in that moment. And then they strike him and beat him up and then turn the page to chapter 27. He's in the same situation, but now by a man by the name of Pilate. And in verse 11, it says, now Jesus stood before the governor and the governor asked him, are you the king of the Jews? How would you respond once again to this situation? Are you the king of the Jews? He knows what's at stake. And Jesus said, you have said so. 
Once again, that same line appears. I am a king. I'm not the kind of king that you think of, though. And his response is utterly different than anybody could give in that circumstance or situation. How do I know that? You look at what Pilate does. You look at what Herod had previously done. They, they had power. They had authority. They could mock him and put robes of purple upon him, as Mark tells us. They could write a sign above what would be his death there on the cross saying, here lies Jesus, king of the Jews, right? And make fun of him because they have power. And here is this God-man who has all the power. Yet he doesn't function out of fear or worry. He functions in a place where he knows who he is. How, how does he know who he is? Well, you've tracked with us through the Gospels. We know Matthew chapter 1 tells us the lineage that he comes from. We know in Matthew chapter 2 there that he was baptized and the father said, this is my beloved son in whom I'm well pleased. And then if you go over to Matthew chapter 4, he's in the wilderness, or chapter 3, he's in the wilderness, and time and time and time again, the devil comes and tempts him and says, if you are the son of God, then respond in this way. Go and do something outside of God in order to provide for yourself. And in each one of the circumstances, he does not cave. He does not give in to the temptation to take power into his hand, but he remains submitted to the Father. Why is this so important for us? Because we see Jesus, the God-man, operating, functioning out of his identity. And this is huge. Now, when I share this, and when I think this through personally, I'm like, well, I'm not Jesus. So what does this really do for me? I get that this world needs this Messiah and needs this Jesus to function and act and operate in that way, to be one who is willing to suffer, to endure persecution and injustice, and to be faithful in the midst of this. But 2,000 years later, what does this do for me? The story of the cross is the story of victory through sacrifice. This kingdom and cross in which the church has actually divided these theologies out. And if you want to, you can go to a church that says, we're a kingdom church. Our church is going to be all about serving other people and loving other people and being out in the community. And a lot of these churches will disregard the word. And then you have other churches that'll say, we're a cross church. Every week, redemption, death, resurrection, that's what we're going to talk about. And they don't have to be separated theologies. They're married theologies that produce something new in us. And the story that we're reading, the story that we've gone through is the story of God become king in and through Jesus, both in his public career and in his death and resurrection. And you see the sufferer come to glory. And that's what the kingdom and the cross is all about. It's the climax of the fallen nature that, per, that happened in the garden coming together in who Jesus is. This crucified king, Jesus proclaiming the kingdom of God, his royal mission, but it'd be done through a gruesome cross. And from an earthly perspective, it appear that he's powerless, useless, and this will go nowhere. But from the heavenly perspective, the mockery, the beating, the crown of thorns is all significant 
of who he actually is and what is actually being accomplished in what he's done. So he takes shame and transforms it into glory, foolishness and turns it into wisdom, humiliation into exaltation, and the cross is the throne from which Christ rules the world. What does this mean for us? We're going to read the crucifixion when we get ready to do communion in a little bit. We're going to cover that. But what it means is, as a people, it's a great reminder for you. This may be new news for you. But you need what Jesus is giving us through the cross. We need forgiveness, and we need God's righteousness. You need to hear that. You need forgiveness, yes, but you also need God's righteousness. We need forgiveness because we've lived in rebellion to this God. We've lived for our independence and an extreme independence. We've sought after how we can get an identity outside of God, whether that's through a community aspect or an individualistic aspect. We've thought, how can one of these two ways fulfill and satisfy me? And that is the journey that humans are on in order to fill this void that they have in their heart that God is then calling them to fill with who he is. And the cross is more than just forgiveness of sins. It gives us his righteousness. The word that theologians like to use is imputed righteousness to us. In Philippians 3.9, it says, And be found in him, not having a righteousness of, my, righteousness of my own that comes from the law, but that which comes through faith in Christ, the righteousness from God that depends on faith. The cross, what we're going to read, is Jesus stepping in our place dying the death that we deserved and giving us the life that we did not, forgiving us of our sins. But it's not just that. Something else takes place on the cross. It's expiation, the taking away of your previous identity, your sin, your shame, your guilt, and giving you a brand new one. This idea of expiation is so important. And I want to focus on it a little bit in the shame aspect Shame is something that you can bring upon yourself, and shame is something that you can bring upon somebody else, okay? Yet, shame is something that continues to kind of ride us like a coat we put on and define us and tell us who we are, and we can cover and hide ourselves because of the shame, and shame will cause us to feel dirty, right? Like, I've shared this before, but when somebody walked into our house and stole my laptop and some jewelry, we just felt dirty, Maybe as a child, there's been things that have happened in your life. Abused by someone you should have trusted. Harmed verbally, physically, sexually. And it just kind of rides you. And it's this identity that you think about from time to time. You go, why is this popping back up in my mind, in my head? And the shame wants to overcome you. And so it's sort of an identity that you take on and then you live out of and you wonder, how on earth can I get rid of this shame and the pain that it brings? On the cross, Jesus gives us new identity. He takes shame on himself for the joy that was set before him, that he endured the shame, the scriptures say in Hebrews. And he took shame on himself and then he gives you his righteousness. And it doesn't erase the memories. It doesn't. It doesn't erase what was done to you, but it no longer defines you. I need you to hear that today. Shame is killing our culture. 
those individuals were trying to find ways to cover it up. And society, because we're not a shame in honor culture, is not helping us. Those individuals were drowning in shame, even in the church. And we're letting terms, we're letting actions that have happened to us tell us who we are and how to live. And Jesus says, no more. This is not who you are. Whereas sin maybe has brought that shame on you because you did it yourself or somebody has done something to you, that is not your identity. What is your identity? New identity has been given. And it's a cross-shaped identity. Dietrich Bonhoeffer once said, a king who dies on the cross must be the king of a rather strange kingdom. This is how and what we live out of. Strange kingdom indeed that Jesus brings. One that's not about power structures, greed, trying to get the most for ourselves, but is wanting to give away of ourselves and to give away of life in order to bring new life. It's a cross-shaped kingdom that Jesus brings to each and every one of us. A couple more things and we're done. Timothy Gombis, really love this book, Power and Weakness, and he's talking about Paul's transformed ministry, view of ministry. Um, it's really been influential in my life in the last year of what it even looks like to pastor and care and love and the calling to that. But he wrote, Resurrection Presence is encountered wherever people gather in the name of Jesus and adopt a cruciform identity. Today's special because you're gathered in the name of Jesus. You are followers of a different kingdom. What does that mean? It means we've adopted a cruciform identity or an identity after the cross. If you study the cross and look at the story of Jesus and even just read what we've gone through here this morning, you realize what Jesus is calling us to is radically different than the power structures of Herod, of Pilate, of Caiaphas, of the religious systems. He is calling us to something different, and we are gathered in his name. Gombus goes on, if God poured out resurrection life on Jesus because he willingly, willingly went to the cross, then cross-shaped communities are sites of resurrection presence, God's presence with us. This was a powerfully countercultural message in the first century Greco-Roman world that was oriented to quests for honor and pursuits of power and prestige. This rhythm of the Sunday gathering is so powerful because it's a declaration that we're a cruciform community. Oh, we're absolutely imperfect and don't get it right all the time. And I'm the first to admit that. But we are striving to live out of this new identity, to be a people that live out of this new identity, and it impacts all of our lives. How so? This idea of kingdom work is, as citizens of God's kingdom, the things we do under Jesus. When you believe in what Jesus has done in his death and resurrection, redemption initiated, and adoption into his kingdom, it changes our activity of worship from self-worship to worship of things and idols to what? Worship towards God. It changes activity of service. Once again, from self-service and only doing things that'll bring me glory and honor and praise and worth and value to doing things to bring other people all of those things. That's that transformed, cruciform kind of identity that we take on ourselves. Because uh, our finally activity of behavior, it'll influence how you act and how you respond. 
know about you guys. When I look at how Jesus responded before the guards, before Caiaphas, before Pilate, I see somebody who's absolutely under control. Even though he's not in control, so to speak. I mean, in one hand, yes, God is in control. But he's submitting himself, allowing himself to be calm in a difficult, pressing, trying circumstance and lives out of the sonship, lives out of his identity. Church, if you're a Christian, lean into it. This identity of Christ. This cruciformed identity. And finally, what does this all declare? Kingdom, cross, identity, activity. Scott McKnight, he wrote, the kingdom of heaven was Jesus' way of saying that God's rule is invading the land and challenging the corrupt rule of all human kings. This is that activity that we get to participate in. As we walk in this, and realize this, and robe ourselves in the talk of who we are in Jesus. It's going to shift our desires and our loves. It's going to cause us to lean into that identity of who Christ is, and not just chasing pleasure and trying to find out who we are, but who he has actually told us we are. Our community and our lives, their change, and the people around us are changed. It means we don't grow bitter, but we grow in forgiveness as we lean into who Jesus is. Story is absolutely radical of what God has done. And He's inviting each and every one of you into that story to shed your guilt, to take on His righteousness, to rid yourself of shame because that's not who you are, and to know that you are a son, you are a daughter of Christ, and then to live out of that identity. Let's pray. Father, thank you for that truth and that reality. I know there's so much in here that we could draw from, dwell upon propitiation, substitution, atonement, all of these realities that took place when you laid down your life, poured your life out for us, were buried, and three days later rose again. We grasp and understand the implications of that. Are you making us new creatures in Christ? and participating in his kingdom. May redeemers really grab hold of that. May you spark and influence something in our community that is so contrast to this culture, that's counter to this culture, but is so attractive and beautiful because we walk in that cruciform life. Fill our lives with that. May that be the prayer and cry of our hearts for our community. In Jesus' name, amen.